0: BBC Sounds. Music, radio, podcasts.
1: In Our Time is on its annual break and we'll be back on BBC Radio 4 and BBC Sounds on the 14th of September. Until then, each week we're offering an episode from our archive of nearly 1,000 programmes, which I hope you'll enjoy. Have a good summer. Hello, the Iliad is one of the greatest works in world literature, one of the first and most influential. It explores a few crucial bloody weeks in the long Trojan War when the Greeks might win at last if only their greatest warrior, the godlike Achilles, will return to the fight and forgive Agamemnon, the leader who pulled rank and put him into an implacable fury. The poem is composed in the 8th century BC and attributed to Homer, yet the story is set long before then, perhaps 400 years before, in the mists of a Bronze Age when immortal gods had mortal children. And here, everywhere, we see the consequences of that mortality. We meet to discuss the Iliad are Edith Hall, Professor of Classics at King's College London, Barbara Graziosi, Professor of Classics at Princeton University and Paul Cartledge, A.G. Levantis Senior Research Fellow and Emeritus Professor of Greek Culture at Clare College, Cambridge. Paul Cartledge, what's the wider story of the Trojan War of which this is a part? It's a very big question and uh, if we were to take uh,
2: the whole context it would be something like nine centuries that we have to think of roughly between 1600 BCE and about 700 BCE and within that something is alleged to have happened, namely a massive great war, out of which comes this one surviving artefact, which is quite extraordinary, nearly 16,000 lines of uh, dactylic hexameter epic, attributed to one composer, but uh, scholars are very, very divided on whether there was ever anybody called Homer or any one monumental composer. And the core is an alleged ten-year... I defy anybody to believe that there was such a ten-year siege at Troy. And Troy is located by the ancients, uh, as well as by us, on the Dardanelles, or the uh, strait between Europe and Asia. And there was indeed a big city there. It's been excavated um, over many, many years, going back to the 19th century. And there's no doubt that if there was a real Troy... Then this is the site. But after that, pretty much everything is in doubt, and I'm speaking here as a historian.
1: So, this part we're going to deal with in the Iliad, how. Why did they go to war? Can you explain that? I mean, most yeah. people know, which is terrific for us, but we might as well get it out the way.
2: <laughs> okay. Cherchez la femme is the, the crudest uh, explanation. Um, in myth, uh, there is uh, a story of uh, the so-called judgment of Paris. Paris has nothing to do with the French city. This is the son of the king of Troy, pa- uh, Priam, and he was given a choice uh, between uh, three goddesses, three of the Olympian Greek goddesses, though they might be worshipped in Troy as well as in Greece, and he made the mistake, as the other two goddesses saw it, of choosing uh, Aphrodite, Aphrodite, the most beautiful goddess, the goddess of sex as well as uh, allure. The other two goddesses were thereby implacably hating Harris. So when war broke out, that's a long story. Why did you
1: choose Aphrodite?
2: War. Oh, simply sex
1: and... Um, no, it can't be uh, simply sex there must have been a reason she <laughs> didn't, she didn't just say sex, choose me, did she? So what happened? Crudely, the most beautiful uh, woman in the yeah, world. Yeah, but they she, all
2: promised him something. What did she, ha- she promise him? Well, she happened to be married and so there was a challenge for a young man, presumably in his early twenties, who therefore went over as a guest of uh, Helen, her name was, and her husband, and then um, did the dirty on Menelaus, slept with uh, Helen, maybe raped her, maybe at any rate violently seized her, or did Helen go of her own accords? At any rate, in one version, I stress only one version, Helen did actually go all the way back with Paris to Troy, thereby occasioning a huge uh, loss of face uh, on the part of Menelaus, who just happened to be the brother of the most powerful Greek king of the day, Agamemnon of Mycenae, and thereby hangs the the Trojan War tale which is of Agamemnon getting together a huge posse a thousand ships innumerable men crossing actually a very short crossing from uh, Mainland Greece to the Dardanelles and the rest is the Trojan War
1: and we have gods taking different sides in this don't we?
2: we do, well, we've already mentioned uh, three of them and over all of them is Zeus, Father Zeus, the greatest most powerful of all the gods he rather favours Troy interestingly, whereas of course Hera and uh, Athena who are the two disappointed goddesses are implacably opposed to Troy and support the Greeks though they're not called Greeks, they're called Achaeans or Danaeans or Argives and uh, the battle commences but it doesn't commence, uh, Homer goes in medias res in the tenth year of the war the iliad begins sing muse and he or sing goddess which is in effect the muse
1: who's going to tell the tell the tale and he goes into it that way and then gathers goes to the past and goes to the future and so on and so forth thank you (coughs) it is all We've mentioned, uh, we haven't mentioned yet, (laughs) the anger of Achilles, and it could be called the anger of Achilles, the whole thing, couldn't it? Really, where? How did his anger? What provoked his anger? And what were the consequences? Well, anger
3: is actually the very first word because in Greek you can say wrath, sing, goddess, or wrath, goddess, sing, of Achilles, and it is the first word. It structures the whole thing. Um, It's forty days, basically. It's about forty days where Achilles is unbelievably angry for 23 and a half books <laughs> and then finally gives up his rage at the very, very end. And this was what was so brilliant about it. It's, so it's the, also the theme. He's not the only one who's angry. When we plunge in Medias rays into book one, the god Apollo is actually unbelievably angry because he's been dishonoured by the Greeks. How's he been dishonoured? He's been dishonoured because um, uh, Agamemnon has taken away the daughter of Apollo's high priest. And she's called Chryseis, the priest is called Chryses. And he calls down a curse on, on the Greeks because of the way that his family as priest has been treated. Apollo's the first one who's really, really angry. And uh, sort of Achilles catches that, if you like, because um, we enter, I mean, the very first line is, wrath, goddess, singh. But then it's of Achilles, whose wrath was black and murderous and sent down to Hades many souls of Achaeans. Seeing that period when Achilles' wrath killed off many, many men on his own side, that is how we open. And it's that 40 days where, because Achilles gets very angry and refuses to fight all the way through until book 18, You know, two thirds of the epic, the great warrior refuses to fight and his refusing to fight that anger with Agamemnon, with his supreme commander, is what causes all those deaths of
1: Achaeans. What provoked the wrath?
3: Well, Agamemnon has to give up the the girl Chryseis, who's who's an Anatolian uh, priest's daughter, because otherwise the plague that Apollo has sent against the Achaeans, we start in a moment where everybody feels that everything is in crisis and um, so Agamemnon has to give up his girl in response he takes Achilles' girl who's got a similar name but begins with B, Briseis uh, just says I'm going to have her then and Agamemnon is is, uh, Paul's rank as you say he is the supreme commander he says actually there's a great set of words in Greek where you can say I am the top king I'm the kingiest king of them all and I got my scepter from uh, the gods and I'm Absolutely allowed to do what I want. Achilles says, well, actually, no, you're not. You may be, by hierarchy, the top one. By merit, I am the top one. So we go straight into this clash of who is actually a better warrior and who is... um, by heredity, the top king
1: so Achilles withdraws his his, his muscle really, yes. retires to his tent, which is a ship, and refuses to fight until reparation is made yes. it 's never really made except by himself at the, at, at the very end, so well, we have the well Greek it is actually Agamemnon gives him a lot of tripods he doesn 't give in to that, he gives in to something else which we'll come to um, the it, no it, well, you tell me then, because it seems to me that he doesn't he doesn't ca- care about briscias and the tripods and the gold he gets on with being in his silk he may have had what happens is that his
3: terrible grief um, and wound to his um sense of honor and pride is trumped by the grief of bereavement
1: um I just think it's a rather different thing with pop- than then it
3: it's about one kind of anger and grief being replaced by something bigger and worse. Bereavement is worse than being insulted. So the Greeks are against the Greeks as well as the Greeks being against the Trojans. I actually think the Greeks being against the Greeks is far more vicious and far more prominent in the poem than the Greeks against the Trojans. It's the squabbles between, and not just squabbles, I mean, raging, maniacal fits of absolute fury and envy and anger and revenge and vindictiveness and insult. I mean, the language they use to each other is worse than anything you tend to hear on the battlefield against the other side. And that is a point that Homer, whoever he was, or the poets of, of, of this poem are tr- really trying to make, is that Greeks are rivalry. Greeks are brilliant, but they're
1: very, very bad at cooperating. And the Greeks are rather proud of that. they rather like to feel that they're independent persons.
3: Yes. Yeah. It's part of their self-definition um, as, as an ethnic group and a linguistic group is that they are highly rivalrous and competitive. That's yeah. a very crucial part of the ancient Greek character. Yeah,
1: that's what I was getting at. Uh, Barbara Gossiossi, can we or should we think of the story as set in a particular historical time?
0: Well, as um, you mentioned, in fact, in the introduction, and this is an important aspect of the Iliad, the story, even for the earliest audiences of the poem, was set in the distant past when uh, human beings were closer to the gods, they were godlike heroes, they were strong, they uh, didn't cooperate, as Edith has just pointed out, and um, they were larger than life, stronger, and institutionally less developed than the earliest audiences of the Iliad by which i mean that the um eh conflict that we have at the beginning of the poem is interesting but also exceptionally alarming because it results in the death of the people on whose side you're supposed to be fighting so the earliest audiences would have looked at this heroes. So let's just
1: get the dates right to keep the listener Yes. This is, this is composed, it's agreed about the 8th century BCE, BC. End, and
0: end of and the 8th written, century. Yeah
1: and written down a hundred or so years later but it's about something that happened about 400 years before that. Probably. What might have happened or
0: Might have happened, and the Greeks themselves wouldn't have an easy way of saying 400 years, although Herodotus said that. But the interesting thing is that Troy uh, was already a ruin at the time when the Iliad uh, took shape. So that the stories and the epic stories were swirling around this massive uh, destroyed city uh, and the stories about how it became destroyed uh, were uh, part of the imagination that was fueled by the remains. Uh, And it's interesting because for Homer these people who once fought the there were stronger than men as they are today. More interesting, more glamorous, but also more problematic. So you can look back at this mythical past, maybe 400 years, but partly imagined, partly mythical, uh, and think about the separation between gods and mortals, which has since become... Greater, So Achilles, at the beginning, behaves exactly like Apollo, as Edith said, but then he doesn't anymore. When Apollo gets reparation, he comes down, he stops the plague. When Agamemnon says, I'll give you back everything and more besides, suddenly Achilles says, no, reparation is not enough because my life... Is worth more than anything you can give me. Apollo doesn't have the problem of mortality, <laughs> Achilles does. And that's where we get the separation between the logic of the god Apollo and the logic of Achilles.
1: And so the gods are operating on two levels here. They're operating as gods, divine, they're going to stay there forever and playing around. They're also operating as people who have partnered some of the people in the story itself I mean Achilles is semi-divine Helen is semi-divine and so it goes on which complicates it when they want to stop their children being killed for instance
0: absolutely so the gods themselves are on a learning curve it's not just that Achilles (laughs) has to learn that he's mortal The gods have to learn that they're divine and they shouldn't care so much about mortals. So uh, in book 21, we have this standoff between the gods. They line up against each other and they mimic the war that is happening on the battlefield. And Zeus is standing behind and watching at them and thinking it's very amusing because it is amusing that they should be fighting. And it's the goddesses who really drive this divine battle forward. And at some point... Apollo rather reluctantly, um, um, in fact, Poseidon says to Apollo, oh, I suppose we should fight against one another. And Apollo says to him, Why? They're only mortals. We shouldn't care as much. We should separate ourselves off from these creatures who live and die like leaves on the tree.
1: Have we any idea what the audience might have been for these performances? Because presumably they were oral for a long time and they were performances vastly. Uh, um, and Paul's given us some idea of the size of the thing. It took three days, we're told, or three evenings uh, to perform. Have you any idea who, who came to listen?
0: So, the Iliad is a very great mystery, because if we started with the question, how did literature start, we would imagine that our first composition would be something for a specific purpose and occasion, such as a wedding song, uh, a, a song to, to work in the fields with, battle, exhortation, funeral, laments, and all these genres... Existed and the Iliad refers to, to them. But what the Iliad was for is a far, far more difficult question to answer. And it's a great mystery because it's not a pleasant poem. I think we've already established that. It's not pretty. It's very demanding on an audience it's three days long so whatever this audience was we have to imagine institutional backup for performance because you need to organize people to gather for three days uh, have food toilet breaks sleeping and so on and from early on we know that the poem was performed at city festivals
1: but it's it's rather like it 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 intercuts Paul or with the Olympic Games, as I understand. Every four years, Olympic Games and. In the intermediate, every four years, the the, uh, culture festival goes on, which this is again and again the centrepiece.
2: You're right, this is happening about the same time, and I think the key term here is pan-Hellenic. In other words, it is somehow representing an episode, uh, a long one, where astonishingly and untypically, Greeks from different communities managed to collaborate over a very long period. The Olympic Games is, of course, war minus the shooting, so in other words, <laughs> in the Iliad you have war plus the shooting um, the Iliad is paramilitary exercise uh, in a very nasty way the the Olympic Games is um, a little bit uh, less
1: so I understand that people did come you said that in the In great numbers from all over the islands, like they did for the Olympic Games. Yeah. And for various things, but the Iliad was the centrepiece. Well, as far as we know, or how far do we know? We don't know very much. I mean, there's another tradition,
2: and this is where different cities' rivalries come in. Athens has very little actually to contribute to the story of the Iliad, but they got in on the act by claiming that it was actually there and at one of their unique festivals, the Pan. Athenae, all Athenian games, in honour of Athena that the first um, really serious collaborative effort with many poets reciting the, the, the Iliad and indeed of course the Odyssey um, happened, so um, this is attributed to a particular tyrant, a man called Pisistratus. we're in the 6th century BC, a century or so later than we think probably the first monumental version of the Iliad was created
1: somehow huh? Are people listening in the same way they listen to a player? Is it an amphitheatre? Are they sitting on stone seats wrapped?
2: Yeah, it wouldn't be an amphitheatre, that being a a Roman thing. But on the other hand, um, they would be, I think, in some kind of theatre. The Greek word theatre just means a space where spectators spectate. When it comes to the Panathenaic performances, then we know the space, we know where it's going to happen. But we don't know where the poems were created. We don't actually know precisely where. Homer is attributed to more than one city. Barbara's written a whole book on that. So it's actually uh, up in the air. It's one of those fascinating things. Yet here we are discussing it as if it were real. Well, <laughs> it is incredibly real. I mean, I read it first in Greek way back 50 plus years ago, and it is the foundation of Western culture. It really
1: is. It's Barbara. I'd like to go to Edith. How much agency... This is, would basically seem to be a story of strong men and stronger men mm. and weaker men, mm. but men, 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 and war, 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 mostly. What agency do women have in this?
3: Well, they do have some agency. It's true that the economic structure is set up that men make war and they go and they grab stuff of other places. You know, they go and get lots of riches and they get lots of cattle and they indeed get women um, and they burn cities. Women are, on the other hand, trying to make babies, trying to make families and unbelievably, for huge, unbelievable amounts of time, trying to make beautiful textiles. I mean, this is what they do. In terms of moral agency, there is a category of action, though. We def- definitely see women behind the scenes trying to organise their own lives in the Iliad. So Briseis, for example, um, tells us in Book 19 that she was really trying very hard to get married to Achilles to stop being just um, a-, a concubine who we could sleep with at will, reject at will, but actually get some proper status. And we hear from Helen that the other Trojan women don't talk to her. So they have used their agency. They hate her because their men are, and sons are dying. So we hear these little glimmers from behind the scenes. In book six, um, Hecuba, queen of Troy, and Theano, the high priestess of Athena, do the most spectacular ritual to try to get Athena to stop the warrior who's currently rampaging around, who's called Diomedes. It's not actually their idea. It's Helenus, their prophet, but they do do it. So they do do things more importantly, it's their role to express the pain. So in book one, we have Thetis and all the nymphs of the sea lamenting preemptively for Achilles' fate. And in book 24, we have um, all the prominent women in Troy, including Helen, from starting with Cassandra, when she sees the corpse of, of Hector, we have Andromache and Hecuba and Helen are the ones who do all the emoting. That is work.
1: It is suggested by one of you, and I I truly cannot remember which one of you it is, that the Trojans were weaker because more of the women expressed uh, reservations and gave advice to them. And because they were there in Troy, whereas the Greek women were back in the Greek islands. Well, they suggested
0: are, that. You suggested yes, Can
1: you answer yeah. that then, Bob? Um,
0: well, um, we see it particularly when Hector meets his wife in Book 6. Andromache. Uh, Andromache. She, he has to go back into the city in order to ask his mother and the priestess to... Um, Beg Athena for uh, deliverance in the ritual that Edith has just described. And in doing so, we see how each and every one of the women important to him tries to keep him inside the city and safe. And they do it by their own methods. His mother tries to offer him some wine and is very worried about his physical well-being. And incidentally, in the margin of uh, a medieval manuscript of the Iliad, some monk wrote mothers always try to feed you So there is a continuity there in what Hector's mother tries to do and what mothers in general try to do. And then we have Helen, who tries to seduce him, as I see it, and says, sit next to me, it's so terrible that you have to fight for me, have a bit of comfort. And then his wife performs effectively a funeral lament in front of him and says, do you want me to end up a widow? You've got to stay here, you have to stay safe. And all of this, of course... Potentially weakens his resolve to go back, and there's great anxiety about when he will extricate himself and return to his comrades on the battlefield. The Greeks don't have that problem.
1: But again, it, 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 they, he goes because of his sense of honour. There's honour, there's shame in not being brave, um, there's the destiny that you have to follow. All these things are playing in and out all the time. Paul, Paul Cartledge, um, Achilles returns to the attack uh, oh, to, nice. to be part of the Greek force when his um, friend uh, Patroclus is killed. Now this friend is uh, a ambivalent figure. Some people think that was a homosexual relationship. Sure. Some thinks it was a relationship of of, of, of brothers because they were brought up together. Um, so, what do you think? Well, they're foster brothers, because when he was very, very
2: young, and this is the ghost of Patroclus himself speaking, and right at the end of the poem, he tells us how he killed accidentally the son of someone else, and so he was exiled from his home, and Achilles' dad, Peleus, took him in, so as you say, they were they were foster brothers. What their relationship was uh, in a sexual sense is not made explicit at all. It's not indeed uh, alluded to in Homer. But when we come to uh, the classical period, by which time the institution of pederasty, that is an older, an adult male and a adolescent boy, uh, in a mentoring as well as physical relationship was normal among certain classes, then... And by a process, really, of anachronizing uh, Aeschylus in his Myrmidons makes it absolutely explicit that there is a sexual relationship because it's the thighs of Patroclus that Achilles is particularly attracted to. And that is uh, a key part of physical, homoerotic, homosexual relationship in the classical notion of pederasty.
1: But Achilles is withdrawn from the struggle yeah. and Patroclus stays with him. Patroclus can't s- stand being out of the struggle right. so Achilles lends him his armour, and says go for it but don't go too far. Because it is- goes too far and a god and two mortals kill him. Uh, and the lament um, and the revenge that uh, Achilles takes yeah. is as great as the anger us getting out of the bottle what's your view on this Ada, Paul?
3: well to me um, people have said it's a horrible poem I think it's actually one of the most exciting poems in world history what happens the moment that Achilles hears that Patroclus is dead is that we enter a, a, an emotional um, sequence that goes on for five where his rage, he tries to assuage his rage. He first of all stands at the ships and he howls till the heavens resound and lights come off his head like, I am back, guys, I am back. And then he goes and gets his armour from his mother and he goes into battle and he has skirmishes with Hector, which are disappointing. We don't actually get the full um, showdown with Hector at that point. He kills off dozens of Trojans on the rampage. He even gets in the river, where he kills off more and more and more, even the ones begging for their lives. Then, you know, when all of that is through, he still will not eat, he still will not wash, and we do the funeral of Patroclus. He makes his men, all the other Greeks are allowed to go back and sleep in their ship. he makes them howl all night long, and drive their chariots all night long. And This goes on for books and books, and he cannot get rid of his rage.
1: What who would you take of that rage at that particular time, Barbara?
0: So there is a way in which the rage is transformed. He doesn't care about Agamemnon anymore. Agamemnon says, great, you're back fighting. Here, have the gifts. And he says, later. I don't care about that. Uh, and he focuses on the bereavement. And the bereavement is described in great detail, to the point that uh, m- medical experts have said these are the symptoms of bereavement, and you can see them cross-culturally. And what we begin to see at the end of this poem is that the um, um, pain of Achilles at the death of his uh, closest friend mirrors the death and the pain that Priam, the father of Hector, feels when his own son is killed. We haven't got
1: to that yet because what Achilles does, because Hector has uh, finally finished off and Achilles goes through, wades through rivers, butchers people right left, but finally gets Hector out to fight and quickly polishes him off and then drags him round the walls of Troy for three times and wrecks his body uh, and then in one of the great scenes, as all of you write, uh, Hector's father comes out and begs Achilles to give him back the body of his son so that he can give him decent burial. Sure. And that's when Achilles becomes mortal and stops behaving like a half divine, half mortal.
0: And in fact, the gods have already had a conversation about this because uh, Apollo was um, horrified by the way um, Achilles was behaving and said uh, quite clearly, Achilles has to learn pity and fear and shame. Pity and shame are the two things he identifies as Feelings that are appropriate for mortals, for human beings. And these it is important to note this, are social feelings. You always feel them in relation to your community. And Apollo insists on this and teaches Achilles a lesson by running even faster than him, which is, of course, a point of honour for uh, Achilles. And eventually we arrive at the point in which Achilles is the son of his mortal father, whereas at the beginning of the poem he behaved very much Mm -hmm. as the son of his immortal mother. So we have that transition. Paul,
1: Paul Cartlidge, did the Iliad reflect what the Greeks, the Greek character at the time, or did it help form it?
2: Well, that's, uh, I think there's no such thing as the Greek character. It reflects more mores, it reflects an upper-class uh, aristocratic mentality, which remained constant and indeed controversial, and of course it was against that that, for example, democracy arises as a reaction against. But it is a dominant um, ideology, and uh, it certainly was very helpful for the aristocrats of the 8th century BC to have a poem that uh, seemed to justify their superiority, because it's uh, superior to birth as well as of education, upbringing and consciousness. So, absolutely.
1: Aristocracy is very stressed in the Iliad, isn't he? You, you can't be a noble warrior unless you're nobly born. You can do great deeds, but you, you're, you, the, 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 your background birth is a key factor in this.
3: The um, first real bloodshed in the poem is actually when Odysseus uh, beats up with his scepter, with the scepter, the yes. uh, working-class character who tries to start a mutiny, Thersites, And the first blood that flows is when this, uh, his back is actually you know slashed with the scepter. And it's an incredibly tense and exciting moment in book two. We have the big fight between Achilles and Agamemnon over merit and who does all the work versus privilege. In book one, that is then mirrored down one class in book two, when Thersites tries a mutiny, and says, why are we all here doing all the work for nine years already when we can't sleep with our wives at home? Um, and there's a very, very tense moment because he does get the men behind him in the camps for a few lines. And if you actually perform that live with people, there is a real tension as to who's going to win. And it's all about laughter. And Odysseus manages to turn it round and turn the laughter against the societies who being lower class in Greek mind is also ugly.
2: then um, the men are running away because um, Agamemnon's actually suggested perhaps guys, you know, we we ought really to give up we're not doing brilliantly, are we? so some of them start running off and Odysseus it is who chases after them. when he meets a man of the aristocracy he addresses them with reasonable words (laughs) of persuasion (laughs) when he sees a lower class man such as Thursday, he simply thumps him
1: Barbara?
0: These episodes are part of a technique that Homer uses more generally, which is to ask the what-if question. What if Thersites had persuaded the Greeks? What if uh, uh, Agamemnon's crazy plan of saying, oh, let's just go home, uh, had obtained? All the way through the poem, although we know that Troy is going to fall, there are these moments in which we have the counterfactual, oh, and then troy would have fallen right then had this happened but it didn't happen and this is a way of keeping the audience awake uh we've got three three nights or three days of recitation going and there is a lot of exploration of possibilities that are not then fulfilled in the myth
1: it's it's um, extraordinary how powerful a sense of honor and shame are i mean neither side really wants this both, uh, both sides suffer uh, you, I can't. they can't see, well I can't see, you, you see m- much gain. Uh, everybody resents the fact on both sides that Paris took Helen away from, from Greece and so on and so forth.
3: Well they do and they don't. I mean there are critical readings that say the tragedy, this is uh, ever since uh, um, the Second World War, people have read it as a great uh, pacifist, polemic about the pain and the suffering of, of violence. I'm afraid 18th. we're talking about an ancient Greek warrior society, whether it's the 13th, the 8th or the 5th century BC which is almost always at war where men are trained for war and men are excited by war and there may well have been lots of women who wished they'd hang it up and stop it but that was all the aristocrats aristocracy knew what to do that is why they spent their whole time training and I think they found the poetry of it very exciting.
1: You've referred casually to Homer as if he were real. Now there's so much discussion Mm -hmm. about the unreality of Homer that I don't—we haven't got that much time. But what's your view of the? uh, Was there one person, or was there a collection? And this name of the blind poet added to it. What's the general view here? Starting with you, Barbara.
0: So to start with what we actually know, uh, which is not much, um, clearly the poem came out of a long tradition of oral performance of composition and recomposition without the aid of writing. But also, equally clearly, this poem was written down because we have it. So what happened in between uh, various flexible uh, stories about the Trojan War and this one monumental epic, which quite clearly tries to do the whole tradition by singing of only a few days because it starts with a catalogue of ships, it announces the, de- the through the death of Hector the fall of the entire city. We don't know. But what I would say is that clearly this was a poem meant for reperformance. You're not going to uh, construct something as monumental, enormous, and with such investment, without thinking this is something that is going to stay with us. If one person was solely responsible, or whether we have say, as some have suggested, a collaboration between an inspired oral poet and the technologies of writing coming in. This is something where I think intellectual modesty is required. A lot of my colleague Homerists have said one thing or the other. I've had epic battles about this and careers made and broken. But actually, we have to remember that it is possible for great artefacts to come out in various different ways, either one creative genius or a creative genius collaboration.
2: My take is that the genius consists, whoever it was, in not describing the fall of Troy, in the Iliad. Why is the Iliad called the Iliad? It's a nonsense because Iliad means the poem about Ilios or Ilion, Troy and actually Troy doesn't fall in the Iliad and it's not about the death of Achilles which is the most interesting and exciting uh, aspect because of what was then thought about the fact that he lived so short a life and yet he lives on eternally in memory. So those two absolutely cardinal facts about the Trojan War story excluded, though Adumbrated, referred to, and so on, brilliant, absolute genius, that whoever it was, and I imagine there was one guy I call him the monumental I call him the monumental composer
3: uh, I, I'm sorry, sorry. i 'm just going to say i 'm actually going to go for hive mind here. It is so good because five hundred years of different kinds of poetic talent went into it. Whoever put any finishing touches that did make the sunsets and the unity in the forty days wonderful, <laughs> hands off to <laughs> them. But he, he could not, or she could not, have done that so well if there hadn't been so many brilliant minds already gone into it Richard, over five hundred years.
1: I don't know, about, well, you, 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 you obviously will tell me because I don't know. But it seems to me it was about the sixth century BC or BCE that it was set in concrete, and that isn't well, five hundred years. Did, that's what uh, you said. In, in that it was written down. There's language
3: in it that goes back to the fifteenth century BC. Yeah. Yeah, it but I mean, to. never
1: mind. You you talk as if people. I of course might, but you talk as if once it was put and set in that way, it was continuously amended. I thought the other thing: once it was set in that way, people said, "Don't change your mind." Oh, well, if he I was may, about the period clarify. of uh, yeah.
0: yeah. C- can I clarify here because uh, again, the evidence we have is very incomplete about how fixed the text was in the sixth century. This is a matter of debate, but on the evidence. We have, it cannot be uh, entirely decided. Uh, there are variants that are recorded for us, but they are few. So, the people who say we have a multi text of Homer right down to the Hellenistic period, and some people do argue that, don't have much evidence to go on. Okay. What we do have as evidence, and this is important, is that the rhapsodes, the people performing the Iliad and the Odyssey, had a lot of social pressure on them not to change the text so that already in the 6th century one line apparently gets added and there's a scandal yeah. about one line out of almost 16,000 uh, because it's, it's meant to be Athenian.
3: That, that wasn't actually... Thank you for that, but it wasn't what I, what I was saying. We know from various things to do with the actual language in it that it uses Mycenaean Greek quite often and that it was almost certainly already in formation, in my view by the 13th century or the 12th century, and that we're talking, therefore, about 500 years long before the Phoenician phonetic script is introduced and it's written down, 500 years of people playing around with how should we do the bit where Hera seduces use, how should we do the bit where Thocytes fights up, and developing it, making it better and better. That's when I say hive mind.
1: Have you any evidence for that?
3: There's quite a lot of evidence that the language itself, um, because of the way that the Greek dialect developed and the missing W noise and so on, there is certainly... There also, in, in Linear B, which is the script of the Mycenaean um, Greeks, there are names like Achilles. I mean, there are, and these gods are already there. I'm one for a much, much longer period of development. We've also got lots of visual representations of minstrels in the Mycenaean era. So I'm for a much, much longer era of emergence than I think most of the scholars who are fashionable currently Well I would as a historian add to
2: qualify that slightly that so far as the social customs the uh, imagined um, background in which the heroes move, the the houses they live in etc. etc., these are all it seems uh, from the archaeological evidence much nearer to the moment of monumental composition than to the Mycenaean period so I'm entirely with you, very long tradition but an awful lot of the Stuff that's um, the background noise, if you like, of the epic um, duels and whatever. that is more ninth, eighth century than it is 12th, 11th century. It,
1: we're coming to I'd like to talk about a couple of things. We're coming to the end. What, what about the repetitiveness of the language, and the, uh, the repetitiveness of the Im- repetitiveness of the images at- attached to the heroes of the piece and heroines of the piece? What does that give?
0: So the repetitiveness has to do with the technique used to compose without the aid of writing so that you have formally ready-made bits of language that you can use and um, which have the right rhythm and that you have pre-memorized so that you build it out of pieces of language that are already in your repertoire. Um, For modern readers, the difficulty is that this sounds a little bit repetitive and I had students, of course, complain saying, well... Dawn of the Rosy Fingers is nice once, but, you know, 50 plus times it becomes a a little bit uh, less thrilling. But it is expressive because it links everything to how it should be. So Achilles is swift-footed. He should be running on the battlefield chasing the enemy, as he eventually does at the end of the poem. But for most of the poem, he's sulking, motionless, in his tent. So the traditional language of Homer reminds us of how the story ought to go and how things ought to be. And often there is a tension between uh, the traditional formulations that are used and the specific situations when that the, are described in the story.
1: Presumably the story was known to the audience. So what sense of jeopardy was there when they were listening to it? Um, Might there have been?
3: Y- you may have watched Clint Eastwood Revenge movie 20 times. You're still going to get very excited just before that shootout.
1: Some people
0: are.
3: Well, it all depends on how well it's performed, I think. If, yeah. you've, got, if you've got a bard that can really make an electrifying atmosphere, you know, I've seen... Un- Antony and Cleopatra by Shakespeare about a hundred times I'm still always worried about whether they're actually going to you know, kill themselves at the end or not, in the hands of good actors
2: But there is a genuine point about whether the myth was as it were fixed, in other words the essential story components, and just give you one illustration from a later period, Agamemnon is not killed in Aeschylus by Aegisthus he's killed by Clytemnestra in Homer he's killed by Aegisthus, as any normal 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 Greek would expect. So, in other words, you can play around if you're in drama. You possibly can't play around if you're in the epic. Finally, what impact? Is it possible to summarise the impact this has? It's just enormous. I mean, well, What does enormous mean? Well, it's the um, Plato, in composing the Republic as we translate it, excludes poets from his ideal state because he wants to ex- exclude Homer. Homer is the, absolutely the, the elephant in every Greek's room.
3: Alexander the Great had it rolled up and took it everywhere. He probably would not have invaded Bactria, Afghanistan. <laughs> India <laughs> and conquered Persia if he had not been enthused by the Iliad or, that changed the history of
0: the world and on. of course the Romans considered themselves the heirs of the uh, Trojan refugees and this story about the survival of Troy through Aeneas travelling on to Italy and founding Rome is foundational for Western culture so that's another way in and which the Iliad is important you consider it
1: vitally important for the development of theatre opera and so on and so forth absolutely. basically Western culture absolutely undivorceable. But, uh, thank you very much, Edith Hall, uh, Barbara Garciosi and Paul Cartlis. Next week we'll be discussing the history of automata, sophisticated machines, apparently human, and are they or are they not going to replace us? Thanks for listening.
3: And the In Our Time podcast gets some extra time now with a few minutes of bonus material from Melvin and his guests first automator are
0: Hephaestus's robots (laughs) (laughs) we should have talked about that Hephaestus
3: has built himself some robots because he's disabled who help
0: him around the house tripods
3: that move by themselves and
0: the lady girls (laughs) as well you know you're you're still
1: being recorded here for the (laughs)
0: watchers what what vital
1: did we miss out well I thought
2: we missed out that um Patroclus was killed in the way he was by Hector be- only because Apollo intervened. Hector is killed by Achilles in the way that he is only because of the intervention of, of Athena. It's very interesting. You and I might think Patroclus was killed by Hector, Hector was killed by Achilles, but integral to the story, the gods and goddesses, they don't fade away. They don't set things in motion. They're actually there. But I thought I said when Patroclus yeah. said, I thought I said he was killed by a god and two men. You yeah. did, yeah. but. But um, you didn't specify which god and why. No, Apollo a bit much
1: of that. The was speed was we're well going. <laughs> well, I wanted what
3: grandeur. I wanted more grandeur. I wanted just to talk about just the way that the yeah, literature is of such an elevated nature. Yeah, we didn't. So whether it's Athena sort of you know darting down like a meteor or it's
0: Zeus shaking and, no No, all of it. Whether similes. it's somebody. But doing also the encounter own, between. Uh, why, didn't
1: you? That, why didn't you?
0: Sorry, you because you wanted those sort you? of sociological things. I
1: didn't want anything. I asked you questions; you could have answered any way you wanted. <laughs>
0: <laughs> but <laughs> what, about, what about what about just a, a small a, a small section on the end on, on Priam and Achilles meeting and the women lamenting? Because yeah. we haven't done the end of the poem at all.
1: Yeah. Want, I I give you that, but yeah. I think you covered a lot of ground.
0: Yes, we did. Uh, and we I did do think true. I
1: do think what I said to Edith half jokingly is half true, that if you want to, if you come with ideas about the piece, whatever it is, in this case the alien, that are very, very important to say. You'd easily be able to find ways to say them in the yeah. sort of porous questions I ask.
0: <laughs> I, I always
2: want to speak when someone else is speaking. Yeah. I, yeah. I, I find yeah, this as too. a structural feature of In Our Time, that I have a point to make yeah. when someone else is making <laughs> their point, and
1: it goes, yeah. it just disappears, yeah. inevitably.
3: I thought we covered a lot of ground, actually.
1: Yeah, yeah. What's the business? We never said that Helen was semi-divine, which is a yes, you did. We we did. did. No, no, you did. No, did. You did. Get, oh, good. Yes. Thank God, I got that in. they taught, to it's one.
3: psychologically tortured. They're all psychologically tortured. She's tortured. She wishes she wasn't there half the time. You know, Achilles is tortured. Hector was tortured. It, it's 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 the greatest sort of psychodrama in world history, as long as well as everything else. But then according to Stesichorus and Euripides,
2: she wasn't there and Herodotus, so she wasn't in... No, because surely they
0: would have given her back. <laughs> I mean, it makes sense. <laughs> no,
3: but she, she says she misses her husband and her parents oh, and her little sweet. girl. Yeah, she exactly. does yeah, say honey. she misses oh, her little girl. Quite right. Terrible. But she still goes and, and sleeps with Paris when, when the opportunity arises. Absolutely. She is a tortured person.
1: Is she not led to that? Because he's he's rescued from this battle with Menelaus, this hand-to-hand fight Aphrodite, with Menelaus, yeah. uh, and so uh, there's the Isn't goddess who reckon um, She
0: could still say there's no. that. There's a funny mm-hmm. moment actually no, when sun- when the goddess Aphrodite places wounded. places oh, right. uh, Paris in in bed with Helen, and then. And then Hector says to him, what are you doing here? How did you get here? And he says, I don't rightly know.
3: (laughs) (laughs) But we still know that they're having sex and we're not told that he raped her in that particular occasion at the end of book three. Um, And I think it is this psychological torture. I mean, it is in Achilles' dilemma, shall I have a short and glorious life or shall I just go home and live out to my old age
1: we, we didn't actually we didn't, we didn't I mean, I'm, not you, I'm not asking you and it is it's, uh, is there any consensus about the relationship between Achilles and Patroclus
3: there, there is no homosexual sex whatsoever between them in the Iliad no. there's plenty outside the Iliad But yeah. whoever put that thing together in the form it's in not only decided not to but actually makes sure he tells us that they're each sleeping on opposite sides yeah. of the each tent with their own, own women. Yeah. That is a detail that someone has gone out of their way to put in. Yeah. And I make, think that makes it much more profound. And if you do actually read, I'm not one of these people who thinks that Iliad is about post-traumatic tr- stress disorder. However, when you read about what happens in uh, to ordinary soldiers, especially when they've got a weak mm. commander they don't trust... That not trusting yeah. commander is a crucial thing it's a passionate way they get yeah. w- just one other soldier in an intense friendship yeah. it's not at all sexual yeah. but they call each other "mom." they call each other pop, yeah. they baby each other, yeah. because when you're stuck in some swamp in some part of the world that you don't know, that w- one intense relationship, and I actually think by not making it sexual they have, he has completely trumped the relationship with Briseis I, yeah, think yeah.
1: You, I think that's a very good point. I, I read it in your notes, so I agree with it. Yeah. Yeah. Well thank you very much for getting us going. Thank you. And, uh, thank you. Does anyone want your coffee? Yes, yes.
3: In Our Time with Melvin Bragg is produced by Simon Tillotson.
1: Hello, hello fans of In Our Time. I'm Dr. Michael Mosley, and in my new BBC Radio 4 podcast, Stay Young, I'm investigating some simple, scientifically proven things you can do to rejuvenate yourself from the inside out. Which will you try? Maybe a slice of mango to reduce your wrinkles. Mmm, delicious. Or learning something new to stay sharp. Hi, okay, okay. Hi, okay. How about lifting some weights to protect your muscles against the ravages of time? That was quite tough. To hear all about how to stay young, subscribe to the podcast on BBC Sounds.